Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is uh, Ross Turner, and I'm so grateful to be with you all. It's a privilege uh, to preach the Word of God, and I'm so grateful that Pastor Blake has invited me here along with the elders. Thank you all for having me. Uh, we have been praying, praying for uh, the Wingfields and for Shallow Joy, and we're so thankful. Uh, to, is that the third, Blake? Is that fourth? You guys are ahead of us. Oh, wow. So I have three little ones, too, seven, five, and one. Uh, we always say, should we have a fourth? Should we go there? Yeah, I think we should. So I understand we're, we're fighting that ourselves a little bit. Well, I, I and my wife, Elizabeth, back there were Oklahomans who lived in Texas, and then we moved here. Uh, so we're grateful. We're, we're excited to hopefully call ourselves Virginians once we earn that title. Uh, but I'm excited, most importantly, to uh, be another uh, brother and pastor together in Tidewater Presbytery uh, together. So it is a fearful thing to preach the Word of God. Uh, So let's pray together this morning and prepare our hearts to hear from him. Father, we come to you um, in many ways helpless, in many ways needy, more than we know. And because of this, God, we put our hands out, Lord, to you, and we ask that you would fill it. Fill our hands, Lord, with the good news of Christ. Help us to understand what it means to be thankful and to receive uh, all that you have in him. And Lord, because of that, to pour forth thanksgiving and thankfulness, Lord, from a heart that's been changed by the gospel. I do pray for myself this morning, Lord, that you would be kind to me and use me, God, to proclaim your excellencies and to give me unction by your Holy Ghost, or to speak your words with both clarity and with exhortational power. In Christ's name, amen. In 1928, uh, the famous composer Arnold Schoenberg considered by many to be the father of 20th century music, performed his 31st opus entitled Variations for Orchestra. This piece was considered a seismic shift from the romantic period of music, such as Gershwin, uh, such as Barber, uh, and many others in the, in the early uh, 20th century, to a more modern and contemporary musical style coined serialism or 12-tone Music. It's the loss of musical tonal center. I studied this in college. I was a music major. And as I studied it, I realized, practically speaking, it just sounds horrible. It's just terrible to listen to. There is no key. There are no traditional triad chords, let alone perfect chords. There is no musical center whatsoever. So while this music attempted to create order... From chaos, beauty through despair, in fact, it does the reverse. Tonality was left for randomness. Harmony was abandoned for dissonance. Beauty is cast aside for formula, an equation, simply a series of notes. So it's hopes of redefining music without a center, without tonality, without harmony, no beauty, no symmetry, No order, no purpose, no design brings about randomness, despair, chaos, and absurdity. It does not surprise us then that Schoenberg's music was the overflow of his heart. His life was dominated by superstition, paranoia, fear. He had a strange belief in numerology, He, in fact, believed the number 13 was chasing him. That he would die at the age of a number associated with the multiple of 13. And he did die 
with the association of 13, but through its addition at the age of 76. He was lost and died with fear and without hope. Schoenberg's music is a far cry from the joyous and at times hauntingly beautiful music of Bach's sonatas, partitas, and concertos. The grandeur of Handel's core work, such as the Messiah that we will listen to this Advent season. The reverent, though lesser-known, Estonian composer, Arvo Pert, who was inspired by the Christian worship style of Gregorian chant. I would recommend all three composers to you. All these men, these three, were deeply rooted in their Christian faith. Like Schoenberg, though, their beliefs led to a way of life, a way of worship. While his belief in life led to fear, superstition, and despair, these composers' life led to worship that produced beauty and harmony. The beauty of their music is found in its symmetry, its tonality. Each possesses a centered key, a home base, which all music and peace revolves around. The key is the music's root, the focal point, the hinge, and it breeds harmony. Harmony is created by chords, and traditional chords are made up of three notes. We could consider the G major chord of G, B, and D, or the A major chord of A, C sharp, and E. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul alludes to his own three-note chord. And it produces a perfect harmony in the Christian life. Our Apostle also speaks this morning of a key through which his music produces the gospel of thanksgiving. And this life of worship and thankfulness is to be the the reality of every believer in Jesus Christ. And I do not know if we stand for the Word of God, but I'd like us to stand together for the reading of God's Word this morning from Colossians chapter 3. If you'd stand with me, please. And I will be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. I do appreciate the dynamic quality of it. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 this morning. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace which comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Well, in these one-off sermons, we must give a little bit of context so that we understand that I'm not simply preaching to manipulate your heart. The context of Colossians is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The Bible is about the sovereignty of God. Colossians is about the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. 
Paul begins with the person and work of Christ in chapter 1. Then he defends his own ministry. Then he moves quickly to deconstruct the false teachings of false apostles and gives answers. And then he moves to the exhortational section of the book. And that's where we are this morning. How do we live the Christian life? And in many ways, Colossians 3 through 4 mirrors that of Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, which says to put off the old man, put off corruption, put off the old way, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we are this morning, the putting on of Jesus Christ. So, the sermon I believe that I can see that Paul is preaching here, preaches that life is to be in the key of thankfulness. I have three homiletical headers for you to consider this morning, and then I will have some uses of this sermon for you as you go into the Lord's day. The first is this, verses 12 through 15 speaks about the cord of perfect harmony. As those who have been declared righteous, holy before God by faith in Jesus, Paul therefore exhorts us to live lives attuned to the three-note chord of holy grace, holy love, and holy peace. And this produces gospel harmony. A harmonious life in the key of thankfulness. Secondly, and we see this from the first part of verse 16, that the key to thankfulness is the gospel. The key to thankfulness is the gospel. The message of Christ is the key the tonal center of all Christian thanksgiving. We read from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, question one. There are three headers. The misery of sin, the beauty of grace, and thankfulness. All the Christian life is underneath the header of thankfulness. Even the law. And thirdly, a gospel-transformed heart produces songs of thankfulness. Paul finishes by giving a cross-centered, gospel-transformed exhortation and exaltation of what it should look like to live a cross-centered, God-fearing life. But I'm going to do this a little differently this morning. I gave you the homiletical header, so I'm going to preach first. I'm not going to wait to the applications this morning. Because Paul begins in verse 12 by calling us the holy people he loves. Before we can teach, we must preach, because how do we become holy? How can a holy person become, or an unholy person, become a holy person that God loves? How can we consider this statement before Paul teaches us what it means to live in thankfulness? How can we as unholy people, we should have been torn apart by the confession of sin. That should have torn us up. That we have been unholy before the Lord. How can an unholy person be called a holy person that God loves? Because when the holy meets the unholy, something's got to give. When darkness is met by light, darkness flees. When wax meets heat, wax melts. When water crashes against the rock, the water recedes. When the unholy is met by the holy, the unholy will flee. The unholy will melt. The unholy will recede. 
The unholy will give way. Why? Because we who are unholy are not worthy of the presence of God. Because we are unrighteous before a holy God. Because we were, in fact, rebels before a holy king. Because we are at enmity with God. And our hearts should sink. And our eyes should be filled with tears. And our heads should hang low in despair. Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning, each person eventually must deal with the holiness of God. You must be dealt with, and I must be dealt with, between the holy God and an unholy person. So then how can an unholy person like me become a holy person whom God loves? Paul is preaching here that God has provided a way for you to be holy, to stand in his presence. See, God gave himself as our holiness and as our righteousness. The story of the Bible is teaching this. What God requires, God provides. Since the inception of sin into the world through Adam, God has always had a promise. And what God has promised, God has performed. Now, I'm about to get into a bunch of exhortations. I want to make sure this is clear. No one can lift the burden of sin like Jesus. No one is strong enough, and you are not able. No one could overcome death in the grave like our God. It could not contain him. Why? Because of the power of the word of God. And notice this. We're about to get into all these exhortations. Notice this. The word of God principally is not a request. The word of God principally is not a command. The word of God principally is not an appeal. Why? Because all three of those wait on you. The world principally is a promise because it waits on God. His promise is faithful. His word is unshaken. What he has promised, he has performed. What he said he would do, he has done. Jesus has lived a life you could not live and has died a death you should have died. And he has not just made a way, he is the way. This is how an unholy person can be called holy. This is how an unrighteous person can stand before the impeccable purity of God. So, holy people whom God loves, he is calling you now to live holy because he has declared you to be holy and because he is holy. Growing up, I'm the oldest of four and my brother is about three years younger than me. And we had this um, really gracious system in our home called the hand-me-down system. My father was a preacher. I am a preacher. That means we had only a few pairs of clothes. And so I would have all the clothes, and then my brother would get all of my hand-me-downs. And it was a little embarrassing to watch him walk around. I'm a little bit bigger of a boy than my brother is. And so it was a little weird to watch him walking around in my oversized t-shirts. It looked ridiculous. That's what's happening here. You have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's a little oversized. 
You got to grow up into it. This is what we're doing also in baptism. We're clothing our children with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we pray by God's good work and providence, they will come to repentance and faith and grow into those clothes. Why, why am I telling you this? Because Paul's not really as interested in you getting saved as you living like a saved person. He's really interested in your maturity. He's extremely interested that you would grow up in maturity. This is what Colossians 1.28 says, does it not? To present every person mature in Jesus Christ. Friend, are you growing up in the gospel? Are you growing up in the gospel? Are you making your calling and election sure? So, how do we handle this gift of holiness? Paul says it should create a harmony in your lives. He begins by speaking about grace, of course. C.S. Lewis was once asked, what makes Christianity distinct from all the religions? The incarnation? The resurrection? And we would say, well, well, of course. He says, no. Grace. Grace is what makes it unique. So we must, it says in verse 12 and 13, clothe ourselves. Let's read that. Since God has chosen you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with what? Tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you. You must forgive others. Clothe yourselves with what? Tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowance. Forgive. Remember that the Lord has forgiven you. Friends, these aren't spiritual gifts. These are spiritual requirements for being in the family of God. I used to have a, a good friend who was a um, church administrator at the first church I worked at and grew up in. He'd been there for 30 years. We would say, David, you're just going to have to love me. He says, Ross, that's not my spiritual gift. I know that you all don't say that, but we think that, don't we? These aren't spiritual gifts, friends. These are spiritual requirements, commands to live in the family of God well. Meaning they're characteristics that are produced in your life when you receive a new heart from God the Spirit. And they are paintings on the wall of a home. They ornament the family life. They decorate the home. If you're part of God's new family now, you need to understand that family life in God's house is different. So when Christians spend enough time with each other, you go to one church long enough, you start realizing there's some conflict. Disagreements. Hurt feelings. You start to sit on the other side of the aisle. Do you not? Frustration. Sometimes many of us simply begin to endure each other. Then we start to just put up with each other. Friends, it cannot be that way. Grace must overcome those things in the new family life. For the church is a family of families. In his classic book, The Grace Awakening, Chuck Swindoll calls this part of our perfect cord the oil of grace, which is a requirement in the Christian family. Swindoll says this in his book. Grace is the oil that decreases family friction, that one ingredient that prompts us to release one another to be all God would have us to be, all the while affirming one another in an atmosphere of unconditional love. Wow. Oil 
that decreases family friction. If asked by Christian brothers and sisters that know you, especially those in your house, would they say that you have tender-hearted mercy? Would they say gentleness and patience? What about allowance for faults? What about forgiveness when you're just inconvenienced, let alone offended and hurt? I know I struggle with, I think, all of those. What about you? We need grace. We need Christ. The oil of grace is our answer, and it builds that first part of the chord of gospel harmony. Let us look at now at verse 14. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. The second part of our chord is a binding agent like glue. It binds together what creates this harmony in the Christian life. It's unconditional Holy love. I'm not going to go off onto a diatribe on culture here. I should. I'm not. Holy love. Not just whatever you want love to be. Holy love. We must wear it. We must clothe ourselves with the characteristics of well-oiled life of grace, but we also must affirm others in love. Christian love is not tolerating people. Christian love is making allowances and moving towards people. God calls and commands you, requires you to love one another. You don't always have to like each other, but you do have to love one another. And this comes from Jesus himself, does it not? We think of what Jesus says in John 15, 12 through 13. This is my, not request, this is my commandment. Love each other. In the same way I have loved you, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is the way the family of God works. We think of 1 John 4, 8 through 10, but anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And God has showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. I love what the NLT says here. This is real love. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So if grace is our oil, love is our law. Love is the law of the Christian. It rules the Christian. Oh, Ross, I have so much liberty. But but it's to be ruled by the law of love. It is to rule the Christian church. And again, I'm going to underscore here that these are spiritual requirements, not spiritual gifts. Spiritual requirements. And it's the binding agent for God's family. It's the root of the court of gospel harmony. And thirdly, he says this in verse 15. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So finally, Paul says this, that if Jesus is our king, not self, but if Jesus is our king, It's not enough to say he's simply the essence of these things. He is co-equal with God, yes, but he is the clearest, he is the clearest and most beautiful expression of the model of how to live as a Christian. So he's not only our savior. Understand this. There's an ordering to it here. He is our savior, yes, but he is also our exemplar. He is also the pattern. He is also the way. I said it again, I'll say it again. He is not simply making a way for you. He is the way for you. 
You need to understand that. The path to heaven is not simply a prayer. It's a path. It's a walk. You need to understand something. Jesus doesn't just make a way for a door. He is the way there. You must walk with him. And then we turn to the gospel itself. What is the message about Christ? This is what verse 16 says. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. So here's what I want. I really want you to come away with this. That the gospel is the tonal key of the Christian life. It is the center for our thankfulness in worship. It is the center. It alone, by the Spirit's power, through the word, can produce what Paul says is always be thankful. Are you always thankful? Am I always thankful? The gospel alone has the power to do that. Always be thankful. Brothers and sisters, it's my firm belief that if your life has become ungrateful, unthankful, bitter, your mind and your heart have departed from dwelling on the gospel. They have left. See, a lot of us believe, and you, you know, if you're around churches long enough, you're in ministry long enough, you're going to know this. It's easy to think that the gospel is supposed to make you happy. It's easy to believe that it's made a promise to you about that. It has not. It's easy to start believing, well, you know what? The gospel is supposed to make, make me feel well off. It should maybe not make me wealthy, but I should feel comfortable. So we think the gospel's made us promises to be comforted and comfortable. And then we think the gospel's made us promises for convenience and ease. The gospel has not promised us those things. Pastor Ricky Jones, who was my mentor for a number of years, he saw always saying, you're believing a promise God didn't write. Are you believing promises God didn't write? But he has promised this. You will be thankful. He has not promised you momentary happiness, but he has promised you personal holiness. He has not promised you earthly wealth, but he has promised by the gospel the riches of eternity. He has not promised you easy comfort, but in the Beatitudes, he has promised that you will be comforted. Because the life centered on the gospel will produce thanksgiving. It will produce thankfulness, and it will express itself through worship. A worship that is weathered, a worship that is stretched, a worship that is tested, a worship that is befitting of the close of Jesus Christ. It's a worship that sings gratitude. It brings me to my conclusion, at least for the teaching section this morning, that the gospel ultimately will transform your heart, friends, and it will produce songs of thankfulness. So what does this look like in everyday life according to verse 16b and 17? What does it look like? It says, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. It says this, that the life of thankfulness in the gospel looks like a live, living imaging of the cross. The cross is being pronounced in your life. So therefore, there is a horizontal thankfulness that is being produced in your life. How? Through the teaching and counseling of one another with the gospel. Why do we come together? There are many reasons for this. So that we will hear the gospel from somebody else. Because talking to yourself doesn't always work. You need somebody else to tell you. And then sometimes you're that person who needs to tell somebody else the gospel. Teach and counsel 
one another horizontally with the gospel. It's a priestly element. We're a kingdom of priests. We're serving one another. We're ministering to one another. We're not just taking. We're not just consuming. We're giving. There's this exhortational element of the Christian life that images force forth the cross. So the Christian life is not meant to be silent or private, but public and gathered together in community. And then secondly, Paul is saying there is a vertical thankfulness to the gospel. He says this in verse 17, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And in whatever you do, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the main thing on Sundays. I know we all love our chit-chat. I know. I grew up in the Bible church. I cringe a little bit now because they always put that little fellowship time right in between worship. I wince. But it's okay. It's okay. Sunday's about worship. Sunday's about vertical thanksgiving to God. You can chit-chat after. This is about you communing and your union with Christ. It's about worshiping the risen Savior. It's about Him. It's vertical thankfulness. There's an exaltational element to the gospel here. To imaging forth the cross. We're not just thinking about truths. We're telling one another. We're preaching to one another the truths of the gospel. So this leads me to how should we use this sermon this morning? How should we use this sermon? How should you take this sermon away into your life? There are three. The first one is this, and don't miss this. Thankfulness is a shield against the devil. Some of you have forgotten that the devil is a liar. And I know in the Presbyterian church, we don't teach quite enough on the devil. We just said it in the Heidelberg Catechism. He has given us the power to overcome our adversary. Some of you have forgotten that the devil is a liar. Some of you are believing in the lie of yesterday that you have outgrown your need maybe to read the Bible. That that was a VBS thing. You never outgrow your need to go to church. You never outgrow your, your need to read the scripture or to study it. Because there you need to sit and listen to God about what you need to trust him in now. Maybe more common is our lie of believing in tomorrow. The lie of tomorrow. The tomorrow is always begging and pulling at us, is it not? Get off your calendar. Maybe even right now. Stop making your list right now. And learn to sit and listen to how much God loves you in Christ. Let him tell you. Stop believing in the pull and the begging of tomorrow and sit and listen to the Lord. Thankfulness is a shield against deception. And the most important part of this one is you must be careful with the lies of self-pity. This is the most sinister of the lies of the enemy. Some of you have a master's degree in self-pity. I'll tell you this. If you're wallowing in self-pity, be careful. The devil's close. Be careful. Wallowing in self-pity is not sorrow for sin. It's sorrow for self. Be careful. Thankfulness is a powerful shield against this deception and these lies. Secondly, thankfulness should lead us to affectionate, with an A, affection. I know we love 
effective Christianity. I know that. I'm talking about effective, heartfelt warmth to God. Friends, the Christian faith is many things. It's a biblical faith. It has 66 books. It's a canon that rules our lives. It's propositional, meaning God says, thus saith the Lord. There is a declarative sense to the Christian faith. It's systematic, meaning it's one story. It's harmonized from first to last. It's evangelical. It's not silent. It's public. It's proclaimed. It's declared. It's apologetic. It could be reasonably defended. It's just not, well, my heart tells me this. No, the Bible tells me this. And my experience also tells me this. It's apologetic. And it is ethical. It demands for life change. But I will tell you above all, and this is why it's included in the great chain of Romans 8.28, is that above all is affection for God. Above all, it is love for God. It did not say for those who know all their theology, right? It's for those who love God and are called according to a purpose. Those who have an affectionate love towards God and other. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. The Christian faith, and I'd say it like this, is an apocalyptic affection. God has come, and he's coming again. It's an apocalyptic affection hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God and to see God return. See, if, if you're not sold out on that, you're buying something else. And lastly, how can we apply this sermon? Use it. You must root your life in the gospel. Even when you don't feel thankful, you must worship. Even when your heart doesn't want to worship, you must worship. Even when you don't want to repent, you need to repent. Even when you don't want to believe, you need to believe. Thankfulness is giving back our whole heart, affectionate praise to God, not merely head acknowledgement, not simply when it's convenient. You know, but I know church folks. I'm a pastor. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a 50-year deacon at a PCUSA church. He's still stuck with them. I know church folk. I know what most of you are thinking probably. Some of you might say, well, Ross, I don't get emotional. I'd love to see you yesterday during the game. That's another sermon. Uh, Some might say, you know, I'm not emotional, but here's the good news. You don't have to be emotional. You do need to be affectionate. You do need to be warm. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh evangelist and preacher, used to say this. That the gospel promises that your heart will be changed from cold to warm. If it's changed from stone to flesh. If you don't have any warmth in your heart to the gospel, I'll tell you this, you're not converted. Because the gospel changes you from stone to flesh, cold to warm. You're not converted. It produces warmth and thanksgiving. And then some of you might say this, Double down. I don't sing. I don't sing, Pastor Ross. You're in luck. The Bible says make a noise joyfully. See, you can't get off the hook. The Bible has all the answers. See, some of us are just avoiding the reality of what the gospel produces. I'm going to finish with this. Growing up in my church, we would support and go to and attend a special camp in southwest Missouri near Joplin called Camp Barnabas. 
made national headlines a few years ago when one of the Texas Rangers gave $10 million for the establishment of a new building there. It's a summer camp for students, for children, for adults with handicap needs, for mental handicap, for physical ailments. The goal of that camp is to make it just another summer camp for those students, for those people. The church I grew up in, and then the church I got to serve, the privilege of serving as their, their youth minister for a few years, we would go every year and fill up all their weeks with students. We would basically clean up their food. We would walk them from place to place. We would make sure that they were cared for 24-7. And at this camp, four times during that week, from Monday through Friday morning, they would have what they call parties. These were their worship services. They would have parties there, and they would make noises that would put us to shame Joyful noises that would make our worship shameful. You see, the world sees that, and what they say is this Oh, look at all that noise. God sees it and He says, Perfect pitch. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I thank you that you are the God by grace who implants the word into our hearts that brings about salvation. You clothe us with the unearned, unmerited righteousness of Jesus Christ. You give us all that is necessary for life and godliness, yet you still, you command us because of our sloth, our laziness, our weakness, you command us to live up into that grace, to grow into that righteousness, not because we've earned it, because it's a gift, but help us cooperate with you, O God. Help us to live with you in a way. Help us to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to you. Help us to teach and counsel and exhort one another in the gospel. Help us to live thankful. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.